Welcome to Radio Rehab Entertainment Edition. We are continuing our coverage of South by Southwest Film Festival. Today's movie is The Oxy Kingpins. I'll be talking to director Brendan Fitzgerald and producer Drea Burnandy. This movie was so crazy for me to watch as a heroin addict and an opiate addict and, you know, an addict to everything that feels good. It was really amazing to watch this movie because I got to see how much money people made off of selling opiates legally. They're fine. It's like, you know, I knew drug dealers on the corner of 16th and Mission in San Francisco. It was a whole different scene. They had, you know, no car and lived in tiny apartments in the East Bay. The oxy kingpins are completely different. I mean, they were rich and there are people in this film who get really honest about some dark stuff. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Radio Rehab. Here's your host, Dana Keys. First of all, I want to say thank you guys for being on the show, Drea and Brendan. And uh, I, I want to start off, I like, I'm always forthcoming about everything. I want to start off with the fact that I'm a recovering heroin addict. Uh, so it made me really angry. <laughs> uh, oh my God. I don't even know where to start. Okay. Uh, like I remember in the end of my heroin use seeing, I'd be in San Francisco, you know, like 16th and mission, which is a gnarly area, seeing kids from mill Valley cruise up in a Mercedes to buy heroin. I remember being like, what the hell are you doing here? Oxy was always the reason they always got there to where they were willing to do some gross stuff on the corner of 16th and Mission from a doctor who had actually given them a legal prescription for what I consider legal heroin. You know, it's like people on Adderall. I'm like, oh, you're on meth, but it's legal, you know? Same with Oxys. Like, I mean, it will turn anyone out and nobody does time except those of us who are affected by it. And oh my, I feel like, again, I don't know where to start. I loved watching this, but it got me really riled up. So when did, when did I'm, start? I'm happy to hear that 16th admission is still the same 20 years later. <laughs> It'll never not be gross. Yeah, there's, if it's ever not gross, I'll be shocked. Somebody will figure out how to gentrify it, but it's- uh, They've tried, they yeah. tried. Facebook really tried, but it's still disgusting. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean- Listen, I'm going to out myself. I'm sober 17 years. I got sober um, in San Francisco and um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, so I, I totally relate. I was not a heroin addict, but um, you know, I have so many stories and so many, like this year in particular, I lost a cousin who, um, you know, was a junkie and, you know, he's been battling with heroin his whole life and he finally lost his battle and he, you know, died on his daughter's doorstep, you know, six months ago. And so it's just, you know, I, I feel like there are so many people and the more that we talk to people who've seen the film um, that have have stories like that, you know? And so for, for me personally, what I found out about the distributors, it was just like, this story has to be told, right? Um, like, we need to be talking about this. Why aren't we talking about this? And then when Brendan brought Alex and the rest of the crew to the table, it was just so, you know, just, 
you know, for me, it's like we were able to give them a voice that, um, you know, people just don't get to hear that side of the story when we're talking about this. Exactly. Where did, how did Alex come to be? I mean, what a great subject. What a great person to have actually talking about their real life story. Who, who discovered Alex? Where, who met Alex? Like, how did yeah. that happen? I mean, well, since Drea did it, I'll, I'll do it too. So I'm also sober and I, I was not a, um, I was not an opiates guy either. So I was a primarily like a drinker and, um, I got sober when I was 21 in um, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And so it was like, I mostly like, I don't know, my, my story doesn't, I mostly like drank and, um, and, and smoked like ephedrine for some reason, which is like, which is like kind of, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. These just sell like those things at a truck stop. You get like 500 for $4. Well, you get them to make the meth, like, Brendan. You were just skipping the parts. Well, meth wasn't a thing yet. I was a, I was a pioneer. I used to smoke <laughs> okay. it with Cody. It was, uh, it was weird. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, but I got sober in like the 90s in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And at the time, Scranton had a really serious heroin problem and still does. Like, you know, Scranton consistently is a great place to live and do heroin, I guess. But, it, um, you know, it, it was like, you know, the meetings there, I would go and I was, I had two very close friends that I got sober with who were both heroin addicts. And the first thing I realized was they had something different than I did. Like, like it was, it was, it wasn't the same. And it was, a, and there was like almost like a spirituality to their relationship to that drug that I didn't have with alcohol and things that I did. And it just like, and I came in thinking I was all the same. And I realized like it just wasn't. And they had a really, really hard time. And, you know, I would hang out with them and they were coming down or I would hang out with them and they were, you know, they'd slipped and all that stuff. And I just remember realizing like, this is like, this is, this is like a really powerful thing. And so, you know, like I was living in North Brooklyn in like 2014, 2013. And like, I just remember I left a meeting one day and they had announced that somebody had overdosed and died. And I just, I was like, man, North Brooklyn feels like Scranton in 1995, which is like, if you're comparing anything to Scranton, it, it's bad. You know, like <laughs> nothing good happens in Scranton. No offense, Scranton. I love you guys. But, you know, it, it's just like, it felt like, you know, cause Scranton meetings were, were like, they were just like, it was like where I got sober. It was like, you know, overdoses every month, like people died all the time. And North Brooklyn is not really like that. Like North Brooklyn is like, you know, no offense to North Brooklyn, but it's like a lot, it's like upper middle class, like, you know, people like me more or less. And so I remember just having this, this feeling, but, um, you know, I actually got to know Alex through I, I had actually gone to the meetings that he puts on and knew him sort of casually through there but not well and I knew a little bit about his story like I knew he'd done time and um I'm very close friends with a good friend of his you know and so Dre there's a funny story where I had been putting together kind of like an oxycontin doc and Dre and I right before she moved to LA to go work for the Young Turks we had breakfast and she was they were talking about trying to do a film and I was like she's like I you know you know, I well, we want something on Oxycontin. And I was like, great. I, I have this great idea about the Sacklers and I was going to do this whole other thing. And she was like, don't, don't, you know, don't talk to me about it. And I left the meeting and I went to hang out with my buddy, Mark, who's a heroin addict, uh, recovering heroin addict. And, um, and I, you know, and, uh, and I said, what do you know about Oxycontin? And he had a pretty like long history with it, but he's like, you got to talk to Alex. And then like, like I'm, cue like Alex walked in the room and we started talking so it was like this kind of very fortuitous thing and then um we went and shot this reel 
you know, about three years ago with Pap and, um, and it was just great. Like it was one of these things you shoot in two days and I've done a lot of reels and like, if you can get eight minutes out of something, you're lucky, you know, but we got like this great 20 minute piece. It felt like the movie. Um, and then we went out to market with it and uh, 700 people were making the Oxycontin movie. So, <laughs> so, so we strangely enough, no one wanted to buy the same movie. So we went and developed like, you know, we, we took time and I ended up, you know, deciding to just do a podcast on my own. And we got all those other characters together and they had all like just gotten out of jail. They were all sober with the exception of Doug had not gone to jail. Um, and they all felt like it was, they wanted to tell this story. And it was like, very like weird thing. It wasn't super, super hard. You know, it was a little bit, you know, like cowboy was like, probably I had to drive up there like three or four times and hang out with him. And, um, but Jay came right on board. You know, um, I talked to him on the phone once and then I came and met him and, um, you know, and he, he talked and Doug took a little more work. Like Doug was very hot and very cold and very hot and, and he would disappear, um, you know, because he just, he has the most to lose. Like, he's never been charged with anything. So, you know, getting on camera and just admitting to, like, a slew of crimes is, you know. I can imagine. And you got to think about it, yeah. Uh, I can, even, you can't see his face, of course, because he wants to remain anonymous. But, but even, yeah. you can feel the guilt. Yeah, yeah, he really, he, yeah. Um, but they all do. They all feel like, you know, they see this as, it, like, they kind of understand what they did was wrong and they see this as part of like what they have to do to kind of make up for it. And, um, you know, and so I think that's a, like a very admirable thing. Um, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, how the whole thing happened. It's very recovery so, oriented to do, to do that. You know, you gotta like give back what you've been freely given. Like I, I can, I can understand why they do that. I was just so, like listening to Alex, like Alex was just so forthcoming and it's not like I'm at a meeting and I'm hearing him. It's a, it's a documentary. Like people are going to see it. He was so honest about all of that, about, you know, how he got the drugs, you know, and I don't know, you guys know the show Bosch uh, with uh, Titus Welliver. It's on Amazon. I haven't watched it. I know it. I haven't watched it. I've always kind of meant to watch it. Is it good? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's excellent and it's got a lot of LA scenery in it, which made me, cause I lived in San Francisco when I was watching it and I grew up here. So it made me happy to watch it. But like the whole, the thing with the mules, the people going, you know, to, to the doctor and getting their prescription and they take the people to the pharmacy um, was in that. I didn't really think of that as a real thing. I know that's done in other countries. I definitely know it's done in Mexico. I was like, that's like driving distance from where I was living that that actually exists, that doctors actually prescribe those things and that that actually happens. Like for, for everybody listening right now, it's a bunch of people get into a van and they're paid to get prescriptions from doctors and they go to pharmacies who fill it. It's like, I don't know if I have opiate addict written on my face, but I could walk into a hospital on fire and they'll give me Tylenol. <laughs> it's like shocking to me. I'm like, you got what? I was so mad when I learned about the grips. I'm, I just remember telling Alex, and I don't think he knew I was sober, but we were one of the interviews and I was like, listen, I tried to sell drugs and I was very bad at it. And I'm so jealous about how good you were at all of this. Like, first of all, and then second of all, I never even thought, I mean, I, I got sober in like 2004. So it was like, I don't know, I, I just kind of missed it. Like, I didn't know that you could do that. And I was, 
yeah, I was very mad to find out that it was so easy. No, me too. I tried to, I tried to sell heroin many a time. I always did all of it. It never, it, it never yeah. worked. You know, it's funny. And I, I'm also an alcoholic. Um, you know, I have the whole, I have everything. I'm blessed. <laughs> like I got all the issues. Um, but it's like, I remember when I was young and I was just like getting into opiates and I remember people talking about how hard it was to be an alcoholic. I'm like, you don't know anything, you know, because when you're young and you're like a heroin purist, like I thought I was for a minute. Yeah, like, and they were like, you don't walk into the grocery store and buy some cheese and turn around and there's a wall of heroin. How would you feel about that? Because that is what it is like to be an alcoholic. You know, I learned that the hard way after I (laughs) I became one. Literally trying to buy some dairy and the vodka's talking to me. But, um, but it's like, it's like that for some addicts now with the Oxycontin. I mean, you can, Safeway? That's, that blew my mind. Safeway. I mean, for everyone listening, that's, that's also Vaughn's, Albertson's. It's all like the same, that same big company. But I can't believe a store that big was giving out that many lethal drugs. It's I mean, just- really, all the pharmacies were tied into it. So I think, Drea... Walmart was a def- was Walmart a defendant? Yeah. yeah, I think Walmart was a defendant. So, like, I mean, every the thing that there's two kind of things that struck me, and the one thing is kind of what you're talking about, which is just how easy it was. You know, I was like, I you know, I remember like halfway through like the movie, I was like, man, maybe I should just go to Miami and like become like, a <laughs> you know, like I'll just make a million dollars and I'll just get out of it before it gets bad. You know, like like you know, I, I could use a million dollars. You know, it's like it, you know, it, it, like just how easy it was. You know, like this was these guys. The thing that we didn't get into the film, we, and we really struggled with how much we could put in, but like these, what actually took these guys down was they all got hooked. Is they all like Alex had been using heroin since he was fifteen. Jay, um, Cowboy, they all got hooked. And so danger, you know, it was so easy. Like they they were like full blown drug addict, alcoholic operating this million dollar business. And like my, you know, like the the punchline to the whole thing is like, there's no Walter White on the top of this. There's no Pablo Escobar. There's no evil genius. Alex was like 27 riding jet skis using opiates and drinking vodka all day and like that like the stories that they tell are that are so and we're going to come back and do the podcast eventually but they're they're so funny like he talks about like one time they lost he lost thirty thousand dollars and jay found it in like an ice cooler like alex had just been like so hammered that he put the thirty thousand dollars in the ice cooler and then they um they tell a great story where they um and the funny thing is these guys haven't talked really since they went away. So I'm getting all this information from the three of them separately, but they, um, they take the train up to Boston and they come off the train and there's like a bunch of construction workers and it's like one o'clock in the morning and they're like, Oh, that's weird. And cowboy <laughs> picks them up and they're walking to the construction workers and all the construction workers also whip out guns and they're like DEA and they arrest them and they get them in the room and they search them. And they have them for about an hour and a half and they search them and they let him go and they're walking. And um, Jay, you know, cowboy says to Alex, like, man, you must have really put the pill somewhere because good job, buddy. And Alex is like, I don't have them. And he looks at his other guy and he's like, where'd you put the pills? Like, great job. And the guy's like, I don't have them. And then they look at Jay and they're like, Jay, where's the, where's the pills? And he's like, I thought you had them. And they had been so fucked up when they left, oh, excuse my language, when they left Florida, 
that they had forgotten the pills. And just by sheer coincidence of, of, of not having their act together, didn't go to jail for 25 years. You know, so it's like, it's like, they, like, there's no, like, they were not, you know, Alex is a very, very smart guy. And at different points in his life had been a very sophisticated drug dealer. Like he had operated a whole network on, you know, the Lower East Side and stuff like that. But by the time this was happening, like, the, the sophisticated, young, hustling guy was, you know, operating at about 50%, you know, and, and uh, but it just didn't take, you know, the one thing he'll always say is like, it was no work. And if you're like, well, why didn't you become bigger? And he's like, I didn't really need to, you know, I, I did, I worked <laughs> half a day, twice a week, I made a million, he's like, I could have made $10 million, I just didn't care, you know. And if you look at, if you read up, and I've read a lot about the South Florida scene, and there were people who were doing much bigger, people doing 20, 30,000 pills a week. And it was just, but it was all the same. It wasn't like the, the, the schemes got more sophisticated or smarter, or they had better access. It was still like you're putting, as opposed to 10 people in the van, you're putting 50 people in the van, as opposed to like, you know, it was just more of like driving people to the doctor. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing is like, it was just, it was set up to be abused and for people to make money off of. And there's like, there's almost no way that people weren't going to do that. I was curious how you felt as like an addict, like, were you, were you bummed out by those guys at all? Like, we weren't sure how, like, I was always very nervous how people would respond to them. Which guys, the dealers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not at all. But, you know, like my mom would be. Or my aunt or my grandmother, if she was still here, that would she'd be like, oh, that's what ruined Dana. You know, my, I mean, my family thinks like that. I remember, uh, you know, going back to the South and, and my aunt saying, I just wanted to fly out to California and kill every drug dealer. And I was like, I'd find it again. I'd find it somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, it's me. You would just, you would just move to Nevada. So. <laughs> But don't you, wouldn't they be more pissed at the fucking uh, CEOs? Well, I mean, yeah, watching this, they would. But, you know, back in the day, that was all they thought was it was those dealers. Like, somebody turned me out. It was, no, it was me going looking for it because I did it once and was like, that's what I need to live every day now. Like, so, uh, but no, I didn't. I, I, I just, I thought it was awesome that everybody was so honest. And I mean, and, and then, of course, Anna it's it's like you know she's somebody i would know in recovery the second i looked at her face i i can't even tell you how many people she reminds me of that i'm really close friends with she was one of the people for everyone listening in the documentary who is recovering from this disease and she was very honest about her struggles and when she was talking about her grandfather it, i had the same exact relationship with my grandmother she was like my earth angel she'd do anything for me you know, and I abused that privilege and like, I get the same tears that she got when she was talking about it. When I talk about my grandmother, uh, when she was talking about her grandfather, like I get that. And, and, and when she said, you know, we would eat somebody's face off just for another opiate. Um, my mom and I are always, you know, discussing what it was, what it used to be like. And she never lets me forget the time that I jumped out of a window, took their car keys, stole their car. Uh, my dad was also a recovering heroin addict. He had a bunch of years at this time. My mom is not one of us. She's standing behind the car with her palm out like I'm going to stop. And 
the whole yeah i'm like dude move (laughs) and i just remember my dad going you don't understand she will drive over you right now and i mean i'll never forget the look on my mom's face just like dumbfounded like she wouldn't have driven over me i'm glad she moved is all i have to say because i would have done anything it's like uh what else did anna say something about your arms were trying to come off your body for me it was legs it was always the legs uh just kicking anybody who uses opiates for a certain amount of time even if you're not an addict is going to become addicted because opiates are addictive you know what i mean it's like if you're not an alcoholic and you drink you're not going to become an alcoholic just because you get really hammered on like saint patrick's day or on some weekend, but like opiates, if literally, if you do them for more than 72 hours, you're going to have side effects on the fourth day. You're going to feel it. It's going to be coming out of your body and your body will have stopped producing dopamine and all that stuff, you know? And it's just really, really hard to deal with. And I, I mean, I know heroin and opium addicts who've gotten uh, clean and, and they can drink like normal people. I, I wasn't one of the lucky ones. <laughs> God, that's my big resentment in life. Uh, is, I was like, I can do this. It's legal. No, I can't do anything as it turns out. <laughs> so um, I just love the honesty though. Of, like I said, like Anna, oh, well, let, let me ask that question. Where, where did, how'd you find Anna? If you can tell me that. We got Anna through, um, we tried to rebuild like the whole drug network. And so what we ended up doing, he gave us some really good contacts that were great, but it wasn't through her. Who we got her through was, there was like a local support center and we called and asked, it was just, you know, we just started calling, we found out there was like this local network of like walk-in, they weren't quite clinics, but they had them in Reno and they had them in kind of all the, the major cities. And when we were trying to build a, um, we were trying to meet, basically when the, the, originally we were going to shoot everything in Boston. So basically just have a really clean thing. But then the lawsuit we ended up following was in Nevada. So we had to shift a lot of things to Nevada. We didn't really know how that was going to play. So the first thing we did was try to build out like our whole drug network in Nevada. So we got in touch. We, we found this kind of woman who ran a clinic in Reno and we talked to her. And then, and then when we were doing research on um, kind of like, the ecosystem of the opioid network there, because, you know, it was distinctly different than Boston, actually. It was much different. Like it wasn't like there wasn't, you know, most of the Boston pills were, a lot of them were coming from Florida. There was a couple of doctors within Massachusetts, but Reno really had like, or Nevada had very specific things going on that, that sort of where the opiates came from. And it was these kind of small town pharmacies and then doctors, because there's so many rural areas, doctors there can write scripts for like 600 you know, as opposed to like 140, because they might have to drive six hours to get to a ranch to meet this person. So they sort of were, they had way more leeway in what they could write. So the kind of like what was happening there was way different. And so when we started really reaching, researching and kind of figuring it out, we found um, Mineral County and it just had such weird numbers. And when we looked at photographs, we were like, oh, that's, you know, like we just really wanted to go there, honestly. So we got in touch with like the walk-in clinic and then they in Reno and then they, I think gave us a local person and then that person gave us Anna. It was like a weird thing. The, the interesting thing about Anna and it was like kind of fortuitous is like, you know, we set out, we didn't set out to cast everybody going to jail. Like that's not 
sort of like everybody had been in jail. That was like the fact that Anna and Doug and, and we're well, not Doug, but Anna and Cabo and Jay and Alex all went to jail was just kind of random. You know, that wasn't something that we had cast for going into the movie. Um, if I could do it again, I would definitely cast for it because it makes the story stronger. But, you know, Anna was just like a, a random person that we found. And um, yeah, and she was, and she was great. She was really, really, I wasn't sure like up to like the first 15 minutes of the interview, I wasn't sure how it was going. It was definitely like one of those weird interviews where I was like, I don't know. Um, but it ended up being great. Um, and that town, Hawthorne, and there's two other characters that we shot with that didn't make the cut. One was a cop, like a local cop who we met and we did a drive around with him. And I'm still like, we tried to get it in the film and I'm still like 50-50 if we should have done it. But like, you know, we were talking to him and then it comes out that his wife had actually, you know, his, had died. And he had this kind of really like, powerful story and it was like and they have a daughter like, yeah and they have a daughter and like almost like anywhere you do a rock in that town like you found somebody that had had you know and then there was this grocery store where you, you go buy your groceries and when you talk about like you know the liquor aisle but it's like that grocery store you know like somehow like pumped out 3.1 million pills you know which is like I don't even know how that's possible um so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, yeah, so we, yeah, the bottom line is we got really good at kind of like, and I learned this in Boston and sort of finding local like support groups and kind of working through them. Because um, once they they tend to be really, really keyed in. And we didn't put this in the movie in hindsight. I don't know why I didn't, because they're the ones that will get the funding from this lawsuit and they're the ones that actually really need it. And so there's a great group um, when you're talking about your mom, I was thinking about it called Learn to Cope in Boston, which is like, this woman, you know, she was like middle class, you know, like great life, you know, Boston mom. And she has this, like a 16 year old son and he gets out of his junior year in high school and he's like all-star baseball. And, you know, at the end of the summer, he robs a drugstore, he robs a gas station at gunpoint. And she's just like, what happened? You know? And it was that classic story. And so she started this group that is like really just focused on parents dealing and living with, heroin addicts really and like how do you manage them and I you know I used to drive up and I went to about five or six of the meetings and it was really amazing and like really really powerful and um you know and it's that's actually a group that it feels like a 12-step meeting when you're in it but they actually are funded by um they're actually funded by the state of Massachusetts and that's where like you know this lawsuit money like it's groups like that that really need it because at the end of the day like we have to like figure out how to clean this thing up and it's not gonna we all know it's not gonna clean itself up and we also uh, we also all know that like you know it might get better for five years and then it's gonna get worse and then you know all those people that are gonna get sober are gonna go back out again and um they're gonna have to you know there's people that are gonna that you know there's 15 year old kids you know that took this thing and they're going to deal with the consequences of it until they're 80, you know, and that's just the reality of, you know, being a drug addict and an alcoholic. It's like you, it just, you know, I got sober when I was 21. And, you know, if I die when I'm 95, which is when my grandpa died, like I have to figure out how to like do this for, you know, 70 years. And I don't, you know, we all know that that's not the way you're supposed to think about it, but, you know. <laughs> That's like, unfortunately, that is like what our life is. And that's what a lot of people who got hooked on this thing, you know, that's what their life is going to be like. Um, 
Absolutely. I know my dad got my dad got clean and sober and um he was nineteen eighty-six. And I remember him being like, What's crack like? And I was like, What? He, me? he goes, I don't know, bumped me out. I got clean before I got to try that. And it's funny because my sponsor has, I think, 32 years of sobriety right now. And she's like, you know, it bums me out. I never got to try Zima. I'm like, you did not miss anything. Literally, you could drink Diet 7-Up and put like a piece of alcohol in it. That's what it is. But Zima. Yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, it's I mean, it's always it's always gonna be a struggle and things and and it's like when I look at the oxycontin thing, you know, my addict brain was talking to me throughout the film when I was watching it, like, well, you could have done that. It's <laughs> just bills. You would have sold those so you could get the actual heroin, you know. And and I mean also the fact now that kids are dealing with fentanyl being in their in their drugs. People can do a line of coke and overdose now. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, it makes it easy. I mean, slightly, it makes it easier for me to stay clean. <laughs> it's just like, wow, the whole new world out there right now. I mean, I just yeah. really am glad that that there's movies like this and things that people can watch, you know, so they get educated. And I'm I'm glad that you guys found the most like forthcoming people. I've I just I know there's a lot of documentaries about oxycotton. This gets all of it. It gets the clean and sober people, the people who used to be part of it, the drug companies, the lawyers, the people who are trying to do something about it. Like it's all it's all in there. Like I noticed you said a bunch of times, I don't know if we should have put this in or I should have put that in. Like I think it's perfect. Like I I really, really like it was enjoyable for me to watch. And it made me just the right amount of angry. Yay. <laughs> That's what we were aiming well, for. I have to say it's a testament to Brendan's interview skills. He's just incredible at getting people to open up and really be honest and tell the truth. Um, and just finding people that are willing to be authentic in that way. Um, is really lucky. So, Can I get the name of the podcast? Uh, they, you keep mentioning this podcast. I want to get the name of that. Oh, well, we haven't done it yet. We haven't done it yet. It's it's going to be it's going to be called Rise and Fall of an Oxygen. But it's uh, we we basically recorded like seventy percent of it, and then I stopped to make the movie, and then um, the pandemic happened, and then I moved to Singapore. So so I'm um, I'm finishing another podcast now, and then when I finish that and go back to the states, we're going to go back to the Oxycontin podcast. So that's going to. And that'll be like a little more in depth and a little more like um, we're talking to more experts. And so, um, you know, we have more space. So we talked to like Alex's sister, who's a great, really great person here. And, um, um, and Alex, I mean, Alex is, he's a, he's a, he's a, like, he's a very interesting character. Like he started dealing kind of on the lower east side and sort of was in that whole scene with like the club kids in New York and the, you know, the um, people, you know, from the movie Kids, like, you knew all those guys. Yes, God, absolutely. Yeah, yeah Soleil Moon Fry's new documentary that she just really deals with a lot of that. And Michael Alig died. You know, yes. I mean, like, he's been out of jail for, he's like, oh, this is the new life? I'm just gonna die. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder no, that was crazy. Was that heroin or what was that? It's what, yeah, it's whatever he did. Who knows what he did? But yeah. when he was doing it in like 1992, it was a different thing. Like now everything yeah. is cut and you just can't do that. You know, like yeah. well, I mean, the headlining film at this festival is the Demi Lovato film and just hearing about her overdose and like, and it was fentanyl, you know, it's just like, and they were doing it on purpose. Like they were, it was, <laughs> 
No, I mean, it's totally true. We would hear about somebody on 16th and Mission who had died. We'd be like, who'd they get their stuff from? We wanted it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah I, I hunted those people down. I want not, you know, to kill them because I wanted what they had because I yeah. was doing so much just to not be sick. Yeah. But, yeah. This, I love, I just, I love this movie. And please, like, stay in touch with me about the podcast and everything. I want to listen to it. I want to promote it. I think, I think okay. it's cool. And it's just, it's important for everyone to see this because it's real, you know, and it just, and I just can't say enough about how interesting it is that the addicts go to a federal facility, but the dealers, and that's what they should be called, you know, are unscathed and they made like billions of dollars. It's just, it's an important movie for everyone to watch. So uh, I can't thank you guys enough for being on the show and, and for thank making the movie. Dana. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thanks again to Brendan Andrea from the Oxy Kingpins from South by Southwest Film Festival 2021. Even if you've got nothing to do with addiction and recovery, you'll eat this movie up. It's so amazing. We'll put the links in the show notes and next time we're going to deuce it out. So stick around for that conversation between me and producer Shar when we talk about, you know, uh, drugs. If you want to be on the show or you know anyone who should be on the show, please contact us. The email is radiorehab at gotoproductions.com. That's G-O-T-O productions.com. You can also call or text 415-496-9511, even when we're not in studio. And on all the socials, it's at Radio Rehab Dana, D-A-Y-N-A. Thank you for listening. Keep coming back.